Welcome to Tuesday Noon. We're back. It's another Tuesday, another noon. Uh, it's good to see you people. It's been way too long. It's like a lost family. It Hello. is a little bit. Oh. How are the kids? It's it's like the Folgers commercial, you know, Peter. Oh. You remember that? They wake up and they're brewing coffee. Nothing. Nothing. Uh, No, it's not doing that. Those ads aren't quite out yet. It it happens at Christmas. That's right. Although, you know, I heard on NPR the other day there was a story about how they are, uh, um, uh, how some stores are starting their Christmas stuff in late August in the UK. Wow. I know. Can you believe that? Christmas in August. All I know about Folgers is the best part of waking up is. Folders in your cup, but uh-huh. that—I mean—is that marketing and PR or what? Because I, I remember that you that. know that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I also remember two all beef. Be- all- <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not very well. Two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. So yes. there you go. There you go. Oh Look goodness. at that. Huh? I'm impressed. You want me to sing it for you, please? Yeah, no. no, don't. Please don't. We have a, uh, a, f- a fantastic show today. I'm excited that we're uh, we're doing this. We've got another uh, uh, phone interview from a, a guy. I'm very excited about. He's from Phoenix. Uh, Jamie, you're gonna. Tell yes, us I am. We, we have a great guest today, and we were spending some time off the air chatting, and, and this should be good. His name is Mr. Tim Phillips. Tim has a very broad background in the military. comes from a military family, military father, spending time in, in World War II and Korea and in Vietnam. And, and Tim is actually chief engineer and general manager for the Flood Control District in Arizona. And, and I'm fascinated about that because... Flooding isn't a huge issue for where we are here in Oregon, but certainly uh, I think about Katrina and those sorts of things, and 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 so I think we've got some good stuff there. And also he is the uh, uh, with the Arizona National Guard, uh, and I think there's some uh, fascinating discussions there as well because you know we are relying on our guard like like nobody's business in terms of Iraq and Iran and and Afghanistan. And so Tim, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, first of all, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk to you all. It sounds like an exciting program and uh, exciting time, the things that you do. Um, as you mentioned, I've had a military background all my life, but uh, have always been in the you know, 27 years in the National Guard here in Arizona, uh, and also carrying on a civilian career as a, as a water resource guy uh, all in Arizona here. Uh, so I've really had the opportunity to work both programs, uh, you know, both a military career as well as a civilian career at the same time. And my link to University of Phoenix is I got a master's degree from University of Phoenix in organizational management uh, uh, seven or eight years ago. And actually, it's been longer now, but uh, uh, I have found great value in, in that degree. Wow, very cool. Excellent. So tell me, what do you, as, as the flood control manager, what is that? Tell me, I mean, the name's kind of flood control, duh, but, but give me a little more detail. What does that mean? Well, you know, most people think, of, you know, we're in the desert in Arizona, and most people think, uh, you know, why do you need to manage rain and runoff in the desert because it never rains? And the, the fact is it's not a question of if, it's just a question of when. So uh, the organization that I had here as the chief engineer uh, provides flood hazard mitigation by educating folks about driving across flooded washes to uh, doing studies that define where the flooding could occur when it does occur uh, to building, you know, channels and basins and storm drains to help protect the public when, when there's a significant rainfall event in, you know, in the, in the, the Phoenix Metropolitan Valley. Because you do have this big network of storm drains and stuff, I mean, driving around there, is that correct? Oh, we do. We do. We've been... How many uh, miles? We were 
established by the state legislature in 1959, so we have almost 45 years of doing this business. And so there's there's a lot of uh, facilities in place to keep uh, the public from being flooded. And in fact, over the last couple of years, between the summer monsoon seasons as well as the winter rains, uh, we've had fairly significant flooding events. And I can say that we've only had two folks that lost their lives, and they were both hit by flash floods uh, during the monsoon season uh, uh, over a year ago. So I like to believe that what we're doing is bringing value to the to the uh, the taxpaying public in Maricopa County as well as uh, all the visitors. And as you know, or you probably don't know, Maricopa County itself, as a, as a county of Arizona, is larger than four states in the union and one of the fastest growing counties uh, in, in the United States. Wow. That is, uh, that's Phoenix growth. So that's in the Phoenix, yeah. Arizona area? Yeah. Yeah, it is, very much so. Is your growth coming from, from baby boomers that are retiring there, or is it? No, I think it's people uh, seeking jobs. Uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, I think it's people coming from California and all over the nation. Uh, you know, we kid about who is a, a native Arizona anymore, and it just doesn't seem like there's many uh, that were born and raised in Arizona. You know, it reminds me of a story. I was talking to Bob Ham yesterday. We, we've had we've, Bob on we've the show Bob talking the show, about right? education. He was he was uh, teaching a class. It was a speech class, and the student was a younger student whose name shall remain uh, anonymous. anonymous. And, and and they were arguing that that Americans should go back to the native language that we were founded on, uh, which of course, in his opinion, was English. And and Bob says, well, wait a second, uh, what, what native language, Shoshone? Uh, you know yeah. Wait a second yeah. here. <laughs> we, we were speaking other languages far, but long before we were speaking English here in the United States. Right. So what is a native? I, I don't know. So tell me, tell me a little bit, Tim. So you have this experience of flooding and, and whatnot, and it just begs the question. Obviously, we've experienced a, a huge tragedy with Katrina and New Orleans and how does that relate? What happened there, in in your estimation? And uh, and because you hear all these conspiracies uh, about you know the government didn't care and we didn't put money in and we we shot missiles from planes to blow them up so we could get rid of all the poor people. But, that, I, mean, are, I mean, come what? on! Are you yeah, I've read these things. <laughs> I'm sure you, should, you read them in your liberal you, newspaper you need too. To, you need to stop reading. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't buy it, but I, I want to know. I have never heard that conspiracy. Really? That we shot planes? No, to no, 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 no. The, the planes like shot missiles and, you know, blew up certain dams and, you know. Oh, I've never even heard that. Really? And all yes. those liberal rags you read, you haven't heard that? Yeah. Yeah? No. Anyways. We deal with right. facts, my friend. Oh, don't even get me started. Tim, please all right. stop this. Yeah, stop please this help us. Can we get you off the hook here? Yes. Okay. You know, <laughs> My assessment of Katrina now, you know, I'm sitting in the desert southwest where we don't have hurricanes. Uh, well, we do have, we have hurricane remnants, but, you know, my assessment of, of, of Katrina was a number of different factors. Probably first and foremost, you know, a natural occurrence of a hurricane the size and magnitude that it was coming across, uh, you know, into the, to the Gulf Coast there. Uh, I don't think anybody anticipated that. Obviously, it wasn't anticipated because everybody thought, well, Hurricane Camille was the worst thing we've seen. It couldn't be worse than that. We survived that, so we'll survive survive this. So I think in many respects it was a, an expectation 
or an under expectation simply because you hadn't experienced it. And that's the the difficulty with natural disasters is, you know, they're not habitual or predictable. So you you take that factor, uh, which was purely by chance, it could have crossed the coast in any one of a number of places, it could have just gone back out to the Atlantic, but it happened to hit the time and the place that it did. Uh, you also look at the, the question of aging infrastructure in the United States as a whole. Uh, you know, we have built stuff for 200 years to help protect the public from, you know, multitudes of, you know, natural man-made disasters. You know, the, the flood walls around uh, uh, New Orleans and, and some of the, that infrastructure, you know, uh, has been around for a while. Standards were different. Uh, so there's a whole lot of factors uh, you know, the, the natural terrain where New Orleans really sits in a bowl uh, was a factor. You know, when you start to talk about the political side associated, well, did the government respond fast enough? Uh, you know, that's really probably uh, somebody else to answer. But, you know, my perspective, uh, not in, a, in a, an event that's that large, but my perspective is, you know, there's a whole lot of effort that goes into place and all those people that are in the emergency management field are trying to do the best job for the public that they can as soon as they possibly can and unfortunately sometimes maybe politics can or cannot support that Uh, but i think it was just a worst case natural disaster that occurred at a time and a place and you could probably say i think recently wasn't there a, a a study that came out that said they looked at all the larger cities in the uh, nation where they prepared to be evacuated. And I think, you know, all the, the bigger cities, there's no way you could evacuate people in the amount of time uh, that a natural disaster that occurs, you know, unpredicted. Uh, you know, so, so the circumstances were probably the worst-case circumstances overall. Uh, will it be the last one of these? Probably not. Uh what it does is it sets a tone, a new set of standards for which we as public officials, you know, collectively across the U.S. have to now figure out, based on this experience, how can we do this business better? How can we react, be better prepared, uh, and make sure that we're putting our money in the right places? So, uh, But this won't be the last natural disaster uh, that occurs like that. Uh, imagine if we had a huge earthquake in California, you know, there, we would respond to the best capability that we all could, you know, both as a, as a nation, as well as, you know, as, as government, and then learn from where we need to do better. You know, I could tell you, you, you mentioned changing your subject just a little bit, but you mentioned early on in the discussion about the guards role in Iraq, the military role that's in Iraq. I could tell you that, that, the National Guard and the Army Reserves, or actually all the reserve forces, uh, are now responding to to the Katrina events nationally, as well as, like in Arizona, we have the border. That's kind of a regional event, as well as in Arizona, you know, we've had fires and floods that the military responses or the military resources have been used to help manage. You know, that gets uh, us into a really interesting interesting topic, Tim, that, sure. that uh, you know, do, with the... Uh, um, do you get the feeling, and I'm, I, you know, only from a perspective of, of readiness, 
as involved as the Guard and Reserve Forces are in uh, military events, are we prepared at a state level to deal with natural disasters and the support role that uh, that these uh, uh, that these men and women are so are, are needed? And, and, and I, I, the answer is yes. Is it a challenging environment to deal with the global war on terrorism? You know, a national disaster, a regional disaster, and a local disaster at the same time, or homeland defense type missions? Certainly, it's a challenge. Uh, but you also have to remember that the the military is not the first responder to to civil events that we're a resource that's kind of held back until all other resources have been expended uh, in the case of the fires here in Arizona over the last couple summers uh, you know the the local authority takes care of it the county authority takes care of it and uses all of the resources available to them going all the way up to the state and when the state either needs a unique resource that the guard or the reserve, or the guard in particular, uh, could provide, or all the capabilities of the civilian community have been used, then the military is pulled in. So it's a support role, not a direct involvement role. And that's because we have a government that's led by civilians. The, the, the military is a resource. So that, I mean, that's a key distinction, really, is that, uh, you know, an emergency event is led by the civilian community, managed by the civilian community until such time as they need a military capability. Then they'll go to the National Guard first, and then they'll look at, you know, active duty or federal resources. But, you know, that's one of the roles of the Guard that falls under state control. From a flood control standpoint, if I have a big flood in Arizona, you know, even though I have, you know, 5,000 soldiers potentially available to me as the you know, land component commander, I can't use any of those resources until I've used my own organization's resources, the county's resources, and the state's resources uh, to help manage that flood. Uh, and then when I get to a point where I don't have the capabilities, uh, then the request goes through the state and the governor, and then she utilizes, uh, you know, the guard. Uh, several years ago, down we had major flooding, and the guard was used to help uh, do earthwork and that sort of thing. Uh, but so the, the answer to your question, I kind of beat around the bush. But the answer to your question is, yes, the resources are there. If everything occurred simultaneously, we'd be challenged. But uh, but who wouldn't be? I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, there's always a risk of that, but. Uh, but we've managed to be responsive to every mission that the, the, at least the Guard in Arizona, we've been responsive to every mission that we've been asked to do, whether it's the global war on terrorism, homeland defense, homeland security, like on the, on the border of Arizona, or going and supporting Katrina. We sent several units over for the Katrina Rita relief, or dealing with fires and floods within Arizona. What's going on at the border? What are, I mean, tell me about the efforts there and the effectiveness. And we're really making a difference in, in terms of stemming our concerns about uh, illegal immigration and stuff. Well, let me, let me respond. Since President Bush uh, had his speech last, I think it was July, uh, you know, Arizona was tasked to, to resource the border. And, and again, in a, uh, a support role to the Border Patrol and Customs. So we don't have a lead responsibility. Everything that we're doing is under their jurisdiction as the, the law enforcement. 
we are not doing the the guard in Arizona, uh, of which I can speak specifically, is not doing a law enforcement mission okay. or supporting those that do. The theory has been, and it's it's been working, but the theory has been is let's take the badge carrying border patrol uh, professional, uh, where he has more of a, a uh, an internal role or an administrative role, and if he's badge carrying, he can do law enforcement, and we can backfill his slot with with soldiers and and airmen uh, to do that. The other thing that we've done is provided a uh, you know some on-site uh, what's called initial entry teams, where we have folks on hills with binoculars, kind of helping to watch the border. And once we identify somebody that's coming across illegally, then we call the Border Patrol. So it maximizes the Border Patrol's efficiency by having more eyes available to watch what's going on. I can tell you that several years ago, I was down on the border, probably three or four years ago, and was talking with the Border Patrol folks. And uh, the Tucson sector, which I think runs probably about two-thirds of Arizona, had had captured something like 680,000 illegals through the course of the year. Oh, my gosh. 680,000? It's huge. 680-some-odd thousand. And they estimate that they were, and this is information that they gave me kind of in discussion, but they estimated that they uh, probably only had a success rate of 50%. So if you look at, you know, just multiply that out, that's a huge number of folks that are, that are crossing the border. Tim, what, what, can you just give me an idea of the geography that we're talking about? What does the Tucson sector represent in terms of the length of that portion of the border? Well, the overall border is about, I think, about 300. Um, I want to say it's at least 250 miles. I'm thinking it's 350. I may have my number wrong. But 250 miles of border, even that is a long border that's out in uh, wide open areas. In many places, there's a three-strand barbed wire fence that protects the border, uh, and it goes through valleys, over hills, across rivers, crosses washes. Uh, you know, it's a straight line that's put on fairly rugged uh, terrain that's not wooded. I mean, it's not a wooded area. It's the southwest desert. Right. Uh, so, so the impact is, is, was potentially huge. Uh, since the Guard in support of Border Patrol got on the border here in, uh, in August, uh, I was down there about a month ago, and the Border Patrol folks at, in the Tucson sector were telling me that to date, I think they go October to October, to date this year, uh, they have apprehended only 125,000 within their sector. And and this was probably a month, month and a half ago, but he was saying they'd seen a 25% reduction since the Guard uh, helped support the Border Patrol on the border. Uh, so that tells me that it's effective. Uh the big challenge that I think, uh, you know, that I have as a citizen of Arizona as well as a, as a military professional is, is how do we sustain it? Uh, can we, you know, can we continue to do this mission? Uh, or the idea was the mission would be for a year, year and a half until the Border Patrol could plus up and then they would take on the primary mission. So the challenge is, is can we sustain this for, you know, a year, year and a half? We have what we call duration forces, which are folks that are on essentially uh, uh, you know, federal active duty supporting the border under Title 32, uh, 
that'll be there for however long they're needed. And then we have a lot of units that are coming from all over the country that rotate through to do these either initial entry teams or engineer missions that help make uh, accessibility for the Border Patrol along the border you know, viable and feasible. Uh, we've gotten resources from all over the country, you know, New York, Washington, states in the south that are coming for three or four or five week rotations uh, helping support the border. And Tim, are those folks that are, <laughs> are helping out in this mission, are they, they're civilians as well in a lot of cases. So they're leaving their families and their jobs to come do this to provide this service for the nation and then go back to their civilian life and the regular job, is that correct? That's true. That's true. They're very much like me, where they have, uh, you know, there are some people that work full-time for the Guard, uh, help sustain the organization, but predominantly these folks are traditional uh, National Guardsmen like myself that uh, either found a calling or, you know, felt the need or had the time uh, to come with their units and support Arizona's work on the border. You know, the other southwest states are doing essentially the same thing. How does that impact people's, and, and I think about, too, people that are being deployed, called up and deployed around the nation, the, the impact to families and careers and children, it just has to be tremendous. Can you well, speak to that? It, it, is, it is a tremendous impact, but it's, it, 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 it's kind of a known impact because, you know, we've, you know, the United States, to keep the freedoms that it has, is, has had to go to war many times over our 200 and some odd years of history. Uh, the, the impact of families are there. The folks that, uh, you know, the soldiers and airmen and sailors that have uh, opted for National Guard or reserve duty, you know, the hard line is they understand the rules. You know, if, if the... If we're going to train you to go do a, an infantry mission or an MP mission, you have to expect that potentially sometime during your career you're going to be activated and you may have to go to war. Uh, you know, we saw it in Desert Storm that had a pretty good you know, reserve component participation, and certainly the war in Afghanistan and Iraq has done the same thing. So from a soldier's standpoint, and I refer to soldiers as all the military forces, really, from a soldier's standpoint, I mean, it's part of the deal that, that he has signed up for. The challenge that we have in the reserve component is how do we keep the you know the families and the communities whole when this occurs, and, and that's and that's been a big challenge. I know in my case, if I got and I have not deployed in my career, but I know in in my case, uh, you know I would have to do quite a bit of prior preparation for my wife, and I have two kids to make sure that they're taken care of while I'm gone, and then I would look for the organization you know, the National Guard of Arizona to also look to help my family uh, when they had needs that they couldn't, uh, you know, take care of, that they had a, a source to go to, a resource to go to. Uh, and that's that's the challenge we have in the Guard environment. If you're active duty and you come off of an active duty post, there's already a culture or an environment there that helps support, you know, deployed soldiers. I mean, that was my dad being active duty. That was the way I grew up. Uh, in the reserve component, it's much more of a challenge to try to bring, you know, resources to bear to help take care of the families. And in the role that I'm in in the Guard, one of my big uh, agendas is to how do I take care of the soldier? How do I take care of their family? Uh, 
and how do I how do I evolve the community? Because hey, it's a community-based system. Jim, community-based uh, let me ask you something because you know I don't think we we think about that. We talk a lot about you know reserves and and guard getting shipped off to war, but what we uh-huh. but what I I have never made this connection that at the same time they'll be activated to go respond to domestic issues as well to go down to the border on a tour. What is that? I mean, how long will they? be down on the border and is it is it like a uh, in terms of arizona national guard do they come are they is it a shorter tour or they or could they be gone for a year well the the what i refer to is the duration forces on the border that are supporting arizona are folks that volunteered for that service to uh essentially be paid a federal paycheck uh as a military resource to support the border so they volunteered okay and the, the original intent was that it would be about a two-year mission until the 6,000, you know, I think the president called for 6,000, and that's what the intent was, that they would get uh, 6,000 more Border Patrol folks over the course of the next two years. And the to fill the gap, we'd use the, the Reserve Forces or the National Guard to help uh, fill that gap until those people come online and are, and are available. So, you know, the mission, at least in my mind, has always been, uh, you know, around the two-year time frame uh, until the Border Patrol can carry on the mission, you know, their primary mission with their own resources. So there are folks that volunteered. Some people have volunteered and said, look, I can do six months for my civilian job. Uh, I'd like to support it if I can do it and they can take them, you know, sign me on. Others are on for you know the two years or until uh, we say they're 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 no longer necessary to support the mission. Okay. Um, well, I had a, a question that that um, what I'm wondering is how is it determined who gets called up? So, for example, you're active right now, but you haven't been called to Iraq. Correct. But we have a guy here in Oregon that just died, the age of 53 has been inactive for 13 years, got called up, and just died in Baghdad at the age of 53. So I guess my question is, why was he called up and you haven't been? How, how does the military sit and determine that? Why are there some people that have been sent on three tours now and other people that never have? You know, without, the, without making a matter of policy, it has to be a matter of capability. Um, you know, maybe that individual had some very specialty skill that the uh, you know that it's not readily available, and that's why he needed to be called up. You know what I, I don't know what his skill set was. Yeah, I don't either. Uh, and and that would make a big difference. Uh, you know, you, you go to the well looking for the capabilities that you have, and that's you know we refer to it as the well from the federal side when folks start to look at who needs to be deployed, they're certainly looking at what is the capability that's required. You know, in the theater, and they identify that maybe they need a, a, a NEOD, like an explosive ordnance unit, there to replace a unit that's already been there, and so they go look at within the states, um, you know, what EOD resources are available, and then they'll make the request through the National Guard Bureau and in, into the states to see if that resource is available and can be deployed. Um, when there. There's different levels of mobilization. I mean, you have to under, kind of understand that if it's a federal mobilization that's under the president's order, then it's you know they call up units and it's non-voluntary. Uh, 
if we do like the I talked about the border mission here where it was voluntary so it, each each case has a little bit of different rules depending upon the the authority for mobilization um, the difference on whether I get deployed maybe I just haven't had you know I'm a I'm by trade an engineer and I've been Corps of Engineers all of my life as far as branch military uh, maybe they just didn't think they needed a Corps of Engineer, uh, National Guard general, when they have an active duty uh, engineer general that that can provide what they need. So it, to make a comparison is usually difficult unless you know all the, you know, unless they knew all the facts. Right. Well, yeah, because the first thing so maybe you think that guy of was a maybe he was a, a very specialized uh, civil support type person or a specialty doctor. That required certain skill set. Uh, they may have uh, found that they needed somebody of that capability and, and called them up. Because uh, the first thing you think, I mean, uh, I, you think of as a layperson is, is that it's a lottery. I mean, at some point your number is going to get called, but it's mm -hmm. not. This is this is not old school draft. Right. No, it, it is not a draft. Uh, Should we have a draft? Do we have a draft? Should we, we have Should a draft? We? Oh, Mary. Well, I mean, that, yeah, there's a broad question. I would say right now we're between the, you know, the the active service, uh, the National Guard and the Reserve, uh, as a you know military of one. Uh, today we've been able to to manage uh, what we need to do, or what we've been asked to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I really can't say do we need a draft. Uh, my experience in 27 years in the Guard is. Uh, the folks that I've had underneath me uh, that I've led have been volunteers, so their their commitment, their sense of urgency, their desire to do it is internal to them, not somebody forcing them to do it. And so I think we've we've had across the board a much better quality of of individual because they want to be here, as opposed to being forced to be here through a draft. So what I see a draft adding added value. Based on what I know today, sitting here in my office, no. Yeah, you might get more people, but that becomes: do you get the quality that you need with right. the amount of motivation? Right. And, and of course, there's the not. theory that if we had a draft and certain people's children were forced to go over there, that these wars would end a lot sooner than they. Would. Oh, but, Mary! Mary. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to let you drag us, down that, drag us <laughs> down that path. <laughs> well, not, hey. not, not, not the time and place, but. Uh, I'll be happy to take that one on another <laughs> okay. time, Mary. And um, uh, you read too many of those liberal oh. rags, I'm telling you. So I, I, I know, reading, it's such a horrible liberal thing to do. <laughs> oh, ouch. Oh. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm not even going to go there. Uh, I actually have a really off-the-wall question, Tim, and, and maybe you don't have an opinion of the answer, but I am interested in, and, and I'm not an expert in this area, but I know under Saddam Hussein there were certain um, uh, marshes and fields in Iraq that were, um, the water was taken away, and so the natural resources. And I know that we've tried in some cases to reflood those areas and whatnot. Do you have any thoughts on that and how that's gone? And I know it's kind of an arcane thing, but it's always been of interest to me. Well, uh, let me think about how the best way to answer that. Um, and the reason I ask Re is recovering the water resource that's yes. there. I mean, we do that here in the in the United States all the time, and we we have you know federal agencies like the Corps of Engineers and the Bureau of Reclamation that are 
all the time looking at rehabilitation, restoration of rivers to bring back, uh, you know, that the natural environment and and the natural uh, of the natural environment of the river system and the ecology that goes with that. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's done all the time as we've gotten smarter. You know, as an engineering community, I guess talking from an engineer standpoint, as we've gotten smarter about how to do the, you know, business, we realized that there's certainly value in recovering some of those those types of resources uh, because the, there was a reason that it was there and occurred naturally. So, you know, in Iraq where, where Saddam Hussein did that, uh, you know, there was a reason that, that that happened naturally, and there was a whole culture that... that uh, ended up living and building around that with that as the environment that they lived in. Uh, so to try to restore that uh, and rehabilitate water courses, whether we're talking Iraq or talking Arizona, to me seems to be good business. Cool. Good. My, my last question is, um, what can we do to help support all the men and women who are doing these really, whether, whether we agree with wars or the missions or whatever what can we do as as civilians to help support them well you know i'm really glad you i'm glad you asked that question because it it's not really whether you agree with the war or not the the fact is that we have soldiers airmen and sailors that have been asked by their nation to go to war and i think you know one of the things that you're doing by just doing this broadcast that educates people on on what it takes to provide the resources to go uh, do the military missions that we're asked of uh, is important. I mean, just carrying that torch, uh, I'd say that any chance that you get to acknowledge or recognize somebody that has deployed or somebody that's in the in the reserves uh, is important. I mean, they're, they're dual-hatted, trying to do two jobs, uh, and they're willing to essentially give their life for the, the mission that the nation asked them to do. Uh, I know here in the county, you know, Veterans Day is coming up next week. Uh, my board of supervisors, as the board of directors, is going to do a event for everybody that's deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan since 9/11, bringing a public consciousness to what—not so much the aspect of whether the war is good or bad, but that there are people that are fighting and committed to doing it, and there are folks that are dying and, and wounded. Uh, and so, just being able to carry that message. Uh, that we need to take care of their families. Uh, I can remember when my dad was in Vietnam, there was a gentleman across the street who uh, we had big bay windows in our house, and I could, you know, I was a kid, but I could look up and see Mr. Hare off across the street, and I'd wave to him, and he'd wave back, and he helped take care of us, take care of my mom, my brothers, while my dad was in Vietnam. And I think that's what I would ask the community to, to also try to do, is to look for folks around them that maybe are... are have spouses that are deployed, and just ask them if there's any help that they can give. Uh, and the education process um, uh, of, you know, of, of how we're doing this business and, and telling people that don't have any perspective of the military, that it's, you know, it, it's fundamental to the freedoms of this country, and, and you know, it's a valuable profession. Uh, and my dad said once, it's just the nature of the job that makes it a little bit different. I would probably add, I assume you would agree, Tim, that, and we're looking at, an, at in elections in a week, 
paying attention to your congressmen and what they voted for in terms of VA bills and giving Absolutely. money to the VA for you know families, for health care, for all of those things. So there's a lot of people that say they support the troops, but if you look at their voting record, they vote against the troops every time. Mary, I am so thrilled to hear you say that. What? I don't know. It just seems so not you. It seems out of character. <laughs> no, well, I, did I, I say hold people accountable? No, no, oh. I, no, no. That's definitely in character. For oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's yeah, very, one very simple way. Because well, for some of us, we may not know, like you know, Tim was saying, know somebody deployed where yeah. we could say, "Can we help?" So there's another way if you're removed from that, where you can pay attention. And well, it's smart, and it also says that it, it brings shines. Uh, you know, most people who go into the election booth or fill out your ballot and it's it's easy to vote on the surface issues it's easy to vote on what you're getting mailers on every day but right but but looking more deeply at at, at these issues and talk about who, what what does it mean really to support the troops tim what is your uh, impression of of you know wartime support for the military now as it uh, you know is in contrast say to to vietnam well, i could tell you that at least from my perspective and i've felt it personally that Support of the military is at all-time high. Um, you know, I've I've been on my my drill weekends doing duty and gone into a restaurant to uh, you know to get breakfast or lunch and actually had you know people buying me lunch or thanking me for my service. So I think from that standpoint, uh, those that are aware or have paid attention uh, appreciate what the military has done, regardless of whether they agree you know on the war. But I I think from my perspective. Uh, the military is at a high right now, and, and uh, people appreciate, uh, you know, the service to country that's being done. I can remember when you know, I went to Arizona State University, got my bachelor's degree back in the late 70s, and I can remember walking across ASU being a little bit of conscious, uh, kind of ill at ease of being in uniform. And, uh, and nowadays, I, you know, it's almost an honor to be able to walk around in uniform, knowing that people around you appreciate, you know, that level of service to the country. That's a powerful statement. Mm -hmm. It really is. Tim, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. This has been a, a real treat and an education for us, and and uh, and I hope to our listeners too. So, uh, thank well, you for your time. Appreciate the opportunity very much. Yes, Excellent. thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Yeah. I hope this. Uh, I hope you'll sit down with us uh, again sometime as as the situation changes. Keep in touch, and and uh, we will uh, certainly be in touch with you. I'd be happy to anytime. All right, Tim. I'm going to let you go off the line here. Okay. Have a good afternoon. Bye bye. You too. That was cool, huh? That was really cool. Mm -hmm. Very different perspective. I mean, you see, and we end up seeing so much stuff on the news all the time, and it's very. We debate about this or that, but I think we forget a lot of times the yeah. impact to people's lives and families and jobs. Truly. And their perspective about what they're doing. Well, and it, what the thing that I'm most interested in, and I frankly, I just had a respect for Tim because of, of his role. I don't want to drag him into a political discussion, but what is fascinating to me, and I think this, he speaks, I, I think it's probably very accurate, um, and, and certainly reflect this personally. I, I truly support the troops and what the troops are doing, and I, I truly respect what they're what they're up against. And it's fascinating to me how support for the troops is at an all-time high, when support for the administration is at an all-time low. It is good observation. Yeah. Well, you look at you know, and I'm going to fudge the numbers, but there's something like 45, liberal, 46. Of 
Yeah, I'm at least stating that I might fudge the numbers <laughs> as opposed to stating it as fact. <laughs> but anyway, but there's probably 45, 46, something like that. The uh, Iraqi vets running mm-hmm. November 7th. Two, like two to three are running as Republicans. The rest are running as Democrats. Really? Interesting. Well, that's an interesting statement, too. Huh? So that kind of blows that whole uh, propaganda that all of the military are Republicans and conservatives. It's not true. Well, I, I, it's I everybody. It's a mix of everybody. What's, I mean, the, the, so big that goes, you know, anybody that's liberal is not patriotic. What's so interesting about this whole thing is that the that Republican and conservative, you know, conservative and Democrat, I, they, they're just almost non-arguments anymore because the issues themselves are. Well, I think we are much more. They're counter-oriented. Yeah. We're much more issue-oriented. The, the whole Republican Democrat thing is just tiresome to me because it. It's really about issues, and, and that's I, that's why I struggle with the parties in general because they vote like sheep, and if you're not part of this group, then you're on the out. And what happened to independent thinking and people just trying to do the right thing and be smart about it? And why? Well, it just, so I, 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 I hate the way both parties try to get everybody to toe the line mm-hmm. on on both sides for both arguments. Right, it just but, disgusts me. And I and I will agree. Some of this, it's it's. No offense to the two gents in the room, but it's a little bit of a testo- testosterone surge, chest beating. It's kind of that my football team, my team, and no matter what my team does, I stand you know, behind them. And we've moved into that mentality right now. Um, but now I will challenge that both parties are sheeps. Because the problem with the Democrat Party is there's not enough sheeps. That's why we're disorganized. That's why we're, we, we haven't had um, the success that the Republican Party has had for the last 15, 20 years. So there's a difference. You've got, that's why you have Democrat leaders disagreeing and, and fighting about direction, whereas the Republican Party, they, they march lockstep in line with each other until just recently have you had a few Republicans start to come out on the fringe and they are getting annihilated by their party and by the administration and, and they're eating them alive too. So, you know, well, I so I, I think yeah. there is a problem with parties, but I, you know, I, I, I will have to well, defend the Democratic Party it, getting be shoved into this as a I don't think category. either party, though, has, has strong leadership at the moment. I, I really don't. It doesn't feel like Definitely. It. I, I, I can't say that... Again, no offense to uh, Tim, but we don't have a strong administration and strong leadership, and, and, and the Democratic Party doesn't seem to either, and so then everybody is. And we are a fragmented society. We are more fragmented than we've ever been. There are you know, 250 cable channels. If you don't like your news this way, spin it and watch it a slightly different way. And so we don't really have anything that pulls us together and, and no strong leaders that do that. And, and so you get what you get. And mm-hmm. It's sad. Right. Right, we need three state-run TV channels, and <laughs> oh come on, dude, that's all, not what I was saying. All say. reporters are going to be government need, employees. If everybody just watched Fox, we would be okay. If we no. could just have a king, it would be all be fine. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. And on that where, note, where's FDR? Where's Ronald Reagan? Where's I mean, we don't have any of those anymore. I mean, you know, I think you, I think you do Bush. have some, but they're not allowed, Jamie. I mean, they I, are. I agree with that. No, and, they, and the yeah. ones that I mean, wh- who, would you want to run really? Today? And who wants to be in yeah, politics today? Would you really today? want to run for? I mean, I, I went and saw Al Gore on the on the twenty fourth, and he was asked about running, and what he said is politics are toxic now, and I have 
really no desire to be involved yeah. in that. I, I mean, not meaning that he's not going to be political, but he doesn't want to be back in a, in a position anymore. He thinks he's more effective by trying to influence people's ideas and influence issues because politics is nasty. Well, I think and that's, where the, that's an interesting discussion is what does it take to, be, to run in today's political environment, we should get we Other should put money. a show together on. Well, that. nobody's risen above that no. that toxic. And so you get right. stuck in the toxic mess, and yeah, yeah. Well, we have totally derailed this show. We sure have. Uh, uh, but well, thanks very show, much to Tim uh, to uh, for sitting down with us, and uh, um, uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Make sure to subscribe to the show. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe at Tuesday12.com, and uh, send us an email. The show at Tuesday12.com or our first names at Tuesday12.com. You're checking your email now, I right? Am I am checking my email now. Yes, I have been checking it. Good news. Yeah. Welcome have to I the told future. you about the wedding and marriage proposals I've gotten? <laughs> and, the, and the pictures? And all those pictures oh, that you have. Put them on the show? Yeah. Put them on the website. Jamie at Tuesday12.com. <laughs> Mary at Tuesday12.com and Pete at Tuesday12.com. Thanks for joining us. We're out. We're out.